Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We're so glad you're here. John, thank you for your words. I appreciated that. And all of you who are singing with the praise team, thank you so much for your energy and spirit and leading us this morning. Uh, as we begin, I've got uh, Bronson and Sydney are going to come and read our passage that we've been reading every week from Exodus 34. Open up your Bible or follow on the screen. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Maintaining steadfast love to thousands, thousands, thousandth generation, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Thank you, Bronson and Sydney. Appreciate you reading. I love every week. Different folks reading, and actually, uh, Bronson's mom, September, is going to be closing out the service with a scripture reading, and I love when we see different generations that are joining in uh, the, the worship of God, which speaks to the passage we're going to get to in a few minutes, but before we do, I want to ask, this may be a, a weird question to start out with, but I am curious if you have any particular preferences when it comes to what you eat and how you eat it and when you eat it and how it's presented and prepared. Do you have certain unwritten, unwritten rules that guide what you eat? Uh, things that you can't even always articulate, but they know they shape what you do. I think the reality is if we looked at it, we would realize that everyone has some of those. Every culture has some of those. So for example, we know that there are cultures in the world, there are places in the world where it is not odd at all to eat fish for breakfast. Now I cannot wrap my head around that one. But it's odd because I don't bat an eye if someone eats fried chicken and waffles for breakfast. Why does one make sense and the other not make sense? Or, parents, if your kids came to you and they said, hey, for breakfast this morning, can we have cake or cupcakes? And we would say, don't be absurd. That's ridiculous. Now get in the car, let's go get some donuts and some chocolate chip muffins. Well, what's the difference? It's the name somewhere in our mind, it is different. So my son is here this morning, he's in the sensory room. I asked him if it was okay to share, because some people have different things about textures with their food. And there is a chicken and white bean chili that our family likes to eat. And he just can't, he can't do the texture of that. And so we have one of those little hand blenders that turns it into like a chicken and white bean smoothie for him. And he can eat it that way. Now here's what's interesting. 
when we take it from the original form to the smoothie form, then I can't eat that. So we both got texture things. It's just coming from a different place. And I don't think about having preferences when it comes to textures in food. But if you put celery in chicken salad, we're going to have issues. I'm going to have problems and we're going to have issues. Why did you have to ruin the chicken salad with celery? It doesn't need something watery and stalky and crunchy to finish it out. Let, let the chicken carry the weight. I can't, I can't do that. Some people, I, I suppose all of us to some degree, don't like certain foods on our plate touching other foods, right? So no one wants the green bean juice sogging down our, our rolls, for example. But there are some that, that want distinct separation. There's no cross-contamination going with the food. So if they could, they would eat every meal on one of those elementary cafeteria-style trays. Just, just put it in its own compartment, just so there's no, there's no touching. Now, how many of you, every once in a while, you think, you know what would be fun is let's flip things around and let's have dessert first and then the meal. Do, do any of you ever do that, willing to admit to that? I saw one kind of cautious hand, another cautious hand. So, if you do, you do you. I am happy for you. But the last thing I want to do is chase down a, a molten chocolate cake with tacos bel grande, right? Honestly, if I'm being honest, the last thing I want to do is eat some tacos bel grande, period, no matter what it's following before or after. That's, that's just me. I don't like stomach cramps that go on for 24 hours. But again, if you like it, that's wonderful. But I do have an order of how I like things. And this is where I'm building. And this isn't necessarily revolutionary. I know I'm not alone in this, although I may be a little more strict in my approach or militant than some, but I want to go in order from worst to best, from least to greatest, except when there's french fries, and I'm going to eat those first because I want them hot, but else, I'm going from the thing I like least to the thing I like the most, which means if I'm eating a meal and there is a salad involved, I'm always starting with the salad. I like it the least. I know some people who will save the salad for last. They love the salad. I do not like the salad. I have to give myself a mental pep talk to eat the salad that goes a little something like, you're a grown man, you need the roughage, you can do this little rotor-rooter in the system every once in a while. You just get through it and move on. You can do this. I'm starting there, and then I'm going to progressively work my way to what I like most, which is why dessert, I'm saving that for last. And if there's not, then it's usually the main course or maybe the bread. I want to end on a high note. I want to end with my favorite taste in my mouth, not the worst taste in my mouth, right? And even if that's not your approach for food, you, you understand that mindset, that mentality, which brings me back 
to the passage that we have looked at from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Every week before the service, we've had someone or a couple or a family come up and read part of this. If you haven't been with us in this series, let me remind you about what's going on in the context of these verses. These verses show up at a low point in the story of Israel, right after they have broken covenant with God, and in a very egregious way. In other words, they are at their worst. And God reveals God's best, reminds them of His character, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, stick-with-you love and faithfulness. They're at their worst. God reminds them of God's best. And what God reveals in these verses is so significant that prophets and biblical writers keep circling back to these verses and quoting them in other parts of Scripture more than any other part of Scripture. In, in part or in full. But if you've been with us or if you've stuck with us online every week, then you may have noticed something about the time when someone has come up and read every week, and that is I don't have people end at the same place every single time, every single week. And keen listeners picked up on that. Keen listeners may have noticed that every week I've got verse 6, and some weeks I've got all of verse 7, and some weeks I'll have the readers stop in the middle of verse 7. And there are several reasons intentional. And if you didn't notice that, that's okay. There's a lot of living from Sunday to Sunday. I don't expect you to have noticed that, but if you did notice that, I'll, I'll tell you why I did that. I didn't draw attention to it, but I did that intentionally. And part of it goes back to what I confessed earlier. I like to, I like to end on a high note. I would rather end with a good taste in my mouth. And it is easier to end in the middle of verse 7, maintaining steadfast love to thousands or the thousandth generation and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. It's easier to end there than these next verses. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children from the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Not exactly going out on a high note. Not the best taste in my mouth, at least. And my fear is sometimes we, we hear those last verses and we totally forget what came before. Those are the verses that kind of ring through our ears and we forget the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We, we forget this part about steadfast love to a thousand generations, which is a way of saying going on and on and on endlessly forever into eternity 
and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, just sort of covering the gamut of Hebrew words of different ways that we miss the mark or cross the line. So, it's not exactly ending on a high note, but some of you may be like, well, hey, you didn't have them read the whole thing. Are you, are you playing a little fast and loose with the Scripture there? And I would tell you that when you look at all those other references that show up, I'm, I'm actually in good company because I've, I've told you every week that it's quoted or referenced more than any others, but usually it's in part. It's not the whole thing. So, these characteristics of God, this quotation of this verse shows up about 10, 11 times in the Psalms. And every, almost every time when it's quoted in the Psalms, it's just verse 6. Like Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. And when prophets like Isaiah or Micah or Joel, when they reference these verses, it's the first part of that message, like Joel 2.3, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and steadfast love. And I reference my favorite quotation of these verses in the first sermon of this series. And it shows up in the book of Jonah. Now, I won't walk you through all of Jonah, but just as a reminder, Jonah, the prophet, is told to go to Nineveh, which is about 550 miles away. And Jonah goes almost in the exact opposite direction, about 2,500 miles away. Jonah is going completely in the opposite direction to avoid going to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria at that time was the bully on the block, and they were notorious for their wickedness for their cruelty, and by wickedness, I mean the way that they abused other peoples and other nations when they conquered them. It was cruel. It was painful what they did. It was dehumanizing what they did, and no one in the ancient world was all that fond of Assyria. So when Jonah goes the opposite direction of where he's sent, it's not because he doesn't want to go into a bad neighborhood. God, you know, that's a really dangerous place. I don't, I don't particularly want to go there. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh and goes the opposite direction because Jonah wants God to dish out some justice, some vengeance, and Jonah is afraid that if he goes with a message of repentance, that they might actually listen. And if they listen, then God will act in grace and mercy and not bring judgment. And what does Jonah want? Jonah wants what so many people wanted right then. I want you to take them down. And so after he delivers the message, God sends him to deliver and the people respond 
You may recall in chapter 4, Jonah is bitter. And what does he say? He throws these words back at God. Man, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. But do you hear in Jonah's voice, this time that's not a good thing? Because Jonah is ticked off. I want you to take them down. I want you to wipe them out. I don't want you to be merciful to them. When it's someone else, throw the book at them. When it's us, we throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. Jonah wanted God to throw the book at him. And Jonah went the opposite direction because I just knew what kind of God you are. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I'm in good company when other people in Scripture, they'll celebrate part of this. They won't always quote the latter part, but I'll tell you that also that second part, and this isn't the first time it shows up in Scripture. It also shows up connected to the Ten Commandments where it's a description of people who hate God, a, a way of saying they're actively working toward decreation, to, to undermine God's good creation and care for what God has made and the people that God has made. So when I get to those second verses, there's a lot that's hard there, and I wrestle with that. And some of you may be uncomfortable hearing the preacher say that there's parts of Scripture that he wrestles with, but I do, I, I wrestle with this, and there are other parts that I wrestle with. And I can tell you, as people are struggling with faith in our world, if we don't create space for people to wrestle with difficult parts of Scripture, they're just going to keep walking away. And my question is, if you've never wrestled with Scripture, my question is, have you read it? Because there's some tough parts in there. I'm not the only person who's wrestled with these verses. So, prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are close contemporaries, although Jeremiah shows up on the scene a little earlier, they're both wrestling with this, and they're wrestling with people who are wrestling this. So I'm going to let Ezekiel talk about it. In Ezekiel 18:1, the word of the Lord came to me. What do people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and their children's teeth are set on edge. Now, this is a vivid metaphor for me. You think, I think of a kid with a lemon. Only in this sort of crazy proverb at the time, the image is that it's the parents, it's the grandparents that are eating the lemon. But it's the kid with this reaction, right? Why did something you ate, or the generation before you ate, and I'm the one who's suffering the consequences of it? So Jeremiah is writing at a time with an, when another ancient power in that area is on the doorstep of the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is already out of the question by this point. And Babylon is on the outside looking in, and they can see things are bad, and they're going from bad to worse. 
and the people are struggling. We're, we're in a mess that was not of our own making. And then Ezekiel comes along and he covers some of the same time, but it's a little bit later. And so he starts that ministry, some before the fall of Jerusalem and some while people are already in exile. And it's people in exile that are asking this question, why are we in this mess not of our own making? Are we bearing the responsibility of their bad decisions? Is God somehow holding us responsible? And the fact is, we know we live in a world where the actions of one generation can impact the next. And we see this play out in practical ways all the time, where the decisions of one generation have ripple effects into the next, and the next financial decisions of one generation impacts the next, and social decisions of one generation impacts the next. Injustice in one generation can carry into the next, and the next, and the next. How one generation cares for God's creation impacts not just that time, but the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And we absolutely know that sins and struggles of parents can have implications for the next generation and the next generation. So we see that in abusive households, where abuse impacts not just the one who receives it, but it can often be passed down in other abuse or people who are sorting through the scars of that abuse. And we see that when abandonment has been at play. And we see that when addiction is at play. That it not just impacts that person who's battling addiction, but it can impact the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. And we can talk about all sorts of things that aren't even a discussion of moral failure. We just know that what impacts one generation can impact the next education or a lack of educational opportunity, economics or a lack of economic opportunity, so that there is this generational poverty that can carry from one generation to the next to the next. Some of you know, some of you may not know, my father spent his adult life as a social worker working for children's homes. And so kids would come from a variety of different backgrounds. And some it would be when parents die and there's not other family members that can take care of them and kids would bounce through the system before they landed in the children's home. Or some would be that the parents are around but they're not in a position to care for their kids. Maybe that's emotionally, maybe that's economically, whatever the case may be. And so they bounce around from different situations. And often it was the case by the time those kids would come to the children's homes, they had experienced a difficult life, not of their own making. They experienced heartache and abandonment and abuse that was nothing about their choice. And they were provided the most loving environment that they could give. But you already come in with a lot of baggage and it's not just them. We all know that there are parts of our lives that we carry certain baggage with us. 
from what came before us. We know there are natural consequences, but the people are also wanting to know, is there some sort of divine curse going on here? Is God just passing down a curse from generation to generation? So God sends Ezekiel with this word of encouragement, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote that proverb in Israel. And part of the encouragement comes from the latter part of verse 4, and we see it in this long discussion that ends in verse 20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now, there's a lot of highly figurative language going on here, sin associated with spiritual death and that which separates us from God. But it all boils down to this. Each person, each generation bears responsibility of their own decisions. You're not carrying the weight. You don't have to bear the burden of their issues and problems. Not that you don't bear the scars. Not that you don't carry the wounds, not that we aren't sometimes cleaning up the messes in the present that were created in past, and not that the next generation won't be cleaning up our messes. Because every generation is filled with people who can do great things and are capable of great hurt and harm to ourselves those around us, to the next generation, economically, environmentally, educationally, spiritually. And yet there is this bigger call to hope that Ezekiel reminds them of. You, you won't have to quote this proverb anymore because everyone belongs to God. The parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. That's the ending that I count on. That's the ending that I find hope in because it is the ending that does not push aside what we've learned about God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is a love that is not just about the individual stumbles, whether it's the third or the fourth generation, whatever generation is struggling. It is about a love that extends to thousands, the thousandth generation, which means it goes on forever and ever and ever. That's the God that we worship. That's the end of the story, forgiving the wickedness and rebellion and sin. The end of the story that brings us here is the story of Jesus that says whatever our struggles, whatever our slip-ups, whatever our sins, whatever our problems, He's not only showing a different way, He will make another way. Those 
don't have to be the end of the story. Love and grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, that's the end of the story. And the end of the story that brings us here this morning is that we get to receive it, but we also then get to participate in it, to share it and to show it to people around us in all the places where there is brokenness impacting this generation and the next and the next we come to be mended but then we also go to help mend not because we are perfect or powerful but because this is a powerful story that we choose to live in and in all the ways that there is poverty crushing people around us in our world we go to be filled and nurtured and cared for again by God but then we go out to share to give to be generous in what we have we were never the end of the story we use what God has given us to impact those problems that keep hurting others from generation to generation. And in all the places where there is injustice impacting generations, we come along and we receive the justice of God, but then we go out and we advocate for justice. We stand up for what's right. We stand beside those who have been marginalized and pushed out and left out and in all the ways that people are wounded and hurting and in all the ways that impacts this generation and the next and the next we not only show up to receive healing but we go out to tell people this message to show people this message in our wounded world there is hope. Because the hurt that we experience and bear is not the end of the story. The end of the story is love that extends from generation to generation to the thousandth generation into eternity.